Thank you, everybody, for joining us. It is a great day. We're here live back at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy for a great day for me. This is our 100th episode of Explaining the Faith. I was going to bring a bag of confetti and throw it, but I figured Father Anthony would yell at me, so I decided not to do that. But uh, congratulations to all those who are staying with us. You are really, truly learning and being educated in what seminary teaches. And this is back to seminary. This is our, this is our focus. This is our goal to teach you, uh, to help share with you what I learned in seminary. And it's awesome to have you with us. Today's topic, though, I do have to give kind of a parental guidance warning if you have little children that might be watching this. The topic of today is theology of the body and the church's teaching on sexuality. So although there'll be nothing graphic, of course, there'll be no graphic uh, slides or comments, the nature of the topic might be something to use some discretion for younger viewers, but something we adults don't know that we need to do. So let us pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to send the Holy Spirit down upon us to enlighten our minds and uh, open our hearts to receive your will, to be able to live it in our lives, most especially in chastity. We ask all this through the intercession of our Mother Mary and through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, there is so much to talk about here. Now, you saw on the slide that this is the church teaching, but really, the theology of the body. Now, let's look at our next slide. What I'm doing is I'm drawing from 129. You know, here I am celebrating our 100th. John Paul did 129 Wednesday general audiences between 1979 and 1984 on theology of the body. And look at your slide. They actually made a book on it. It's a book this thick. Now that's really hard for some of you to sit down to read and let alone understand. We did it for you. So stay with us because we're going to summarize as best we can the highlights of that and what we need to know. Okay, the very first thing that I found uh, about this was um, a, a good friend of ours, Edward Shree, was a doctor uh, who works with Augustine Institute. He did a great job summarizing John Paul. I'm going to borrow from some of his notes because he points out the five main categories of this topic. And it's going to be a little bit deep, but get with us, stay with us. Then we're going to go into the practical. We're going to tell you what type of sexual acts are allowed within marriage and what ones are not. We're going to talk about um, gender. We're going to talk about the meaning of marriage. So I got to start with John Paul. It gets a little deep, but stay with us because we're going to get to the depth of the others. And, you know, again, especially most people, probably most emails I get, Father, is this allowed within marriage? Is this sexual activity allowed? You know, those kind of questions. We'll get to all that. All right. So the first one John Paul talks about is the law, he says, of the gift. Sexuality is not a toy for recreation to play with. And it's not a weapon to be used to control somebody else. This is not the purpose, all right? Human persons are made for self-giving love, all right? This is why we're made, not self-getting love, all right? And they will find fulfillment and happiness, he says, 
only when they give of themselves in service to others. Now you're like, Father, I've heard that. Okay, you've heard it. We're going to help you understand it so you can live it even better. All right, since God exists as a communion of persons, we know this, the Trinity, right? He gives, they give themselves in love to each other constantly for all eternity, right? Well, man and women are created in the image of the Trinity, so they are made not to live isolated, but to also give to each other that reciprocal love. I give to you, you give to me, especially in marriage. All right, each seeking his or her own pleasure and advantage from the other is not the goal here. That's not it. Rather, living an intimate, personal communion like the Trinity, constant self-giving love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how it is in your gift to your spouse. All right, we are a mirror of the Trinity. All right, so it's your greatest gift to someone. Your sexuality is your greatest gift to someone because it's not just your body you're giving them. That's why one night stands are wrong. That's why hookup culture is wrong because you're not giving them just your body, you're giving them your soul. That's because your soul is reflected in your body. My body, what I say, what I do reflects who I am in my soul. And so when I just give that away, I didn't just use it or abuse it or think it's just recreation. It's, it's really misguided. And so this is the church teaching. Okay, the second big category is what we talk about in solitude. This is not why man was created. Remember Adam in Genesis 2.18? God said it is not good for man to be alone. Okay, now... And we'll explain why the monks choose to do that later. But if Adam is made to live this law of the gift, giving of himself, we got a problem. Because giving of himself and mutual love isn't going to work because there's nobody else. Right? God created Adam first. And in a sense, he was incomplete because there was nobody like him for him to give himself as an equal partner. All right? This is all John Paul. So... I'm, I'm not making this up. I'm just summarizing for you. I'm saving you weeks of reading because we learned all this in seminary. Chris Sparks, our theologian, helped compile it. Dr. Shree helped explain it. So I'm, I'm synthesizing for you. So John Paul II explained that man only finds his fulfillment when he lives in a relationship of mutual self-giving. Notice mutual. It's not just about you giving and then your spouse doesn't do anything for you. Well, that's what Father Chris said to do. No. You give, your spouse gives. You give to your spouse, willing to give your life. Your spouse is dedicated to you. This is important. The third was unity, original unity. Let's look at our next slide. What is this? This is the creation of Eve. This is the creation of Eve. This is Genesis 2.23. And for those of you here in our shrine, you can follow the slides on your uh, cell phone on our Facebook page, uh, Divine Mercy Official, or YouTube, Divine Mercy. So John Paul notes that the creation of Eve, check this out, was the first time that man was happy. So other guys might be going, uh-oh, that's when he created the woman. Hmm, that's when the misery started. No! 
No, it's the opposite. All right? So this is the first time man manifests joy. Now, finally, at last, Adam says, at last, the bone of my bones. You know, this is beautiful. So now he finally has someone to give himself in this unique way. He sighs at last, for now he's able to live out the law of the gift that he was created to give of himself. Each one of you are created to give of yourself. Who he was meant to be was somebody that gives. <clears throat> That's why it's so important. Now, John Paul reflected on how man and women became one flesh. This is next. He's walking right through the book of Genesis. And he says, they became one flesh. This is Genesis 2.24, the next verse. The next verse. They don't waste any, God doesn't waste any time. In Genesis 2.23, he's talking about Adam. See, there's God saying, open up the Bible. He just called. So Genesis 2.24 now says they became one flesh. This does not merely remain or should say refer to just bodily union. We always think that they became one flesh. We always think, oh, that's the sexual part. The two became one flesh. All of us, myself included, only think of the physical union. But John Paul points to a deeper union, spiritual. The two became one flesh is not just physical, but spiritual. A human person is a body and a soul. And this is the key to understanding sexuality. My Baptist assistant made a great point today. He said, one of the things that we don't understand often is that sex and life come together. We, we want to separate sex from life. And that's where the danger has happened in the world. All right, so anyway, a human person is body and soul. This is why or how we understand sexuality. The body expresses the person. Okay, so you see me, you hear me, you listen to me. My body expresses who I am, my soul. So the body makes visible my spiritual dimension. And when you fully receive my body, not me, because I'm celibate, but the spouse, you're fully receiving their soul. That's why when you meet somebody, no matter how close a friend you are with them, in part, they're covered. You're not intimately sharing the marital act. That's reserved for one person and one person only, your spouse. So the marital act is not meant to just be physical. If we turn it into recreation, we are in trouble. It's meant to express an even deeper personal and spiritual union, John Paul says. Since the body reveals the soul, all right, when man and women give their bodies to each other in the marital act, listen to this, they give their spirits to each other. Does that sound like something that should be given away on a one night stand to some stranger that you meet in a bar? No. This is why we have to teach our young. It's becoming this hookup culture. Dangerous. John Paul II calls this unique language of the body the nuptial meaning of the body. What does nuptial mean? Marriage. Marriage. <clears throat> they express love 
That love that which the person becomes a gift and fulfills the meaning of their existence. Wow. What's the meaning of life? I want to know the meaning of life. I'm so tired of just wandering around with no purpose. You have a purpose. It's to give of yourself to your spouse. Well, Father, I'm not married. I'm called to be a consecrated religious. Then it's even deeper to give of yourself directly and only to God. Well, Father, I'm single. Well, the Bible says that the single person has much more time to focus on God. So it's either God or neighbor. That's the two great commandments. Love God, love neighbor. In this case, your neighbor's living next to you or sleeping with you. So we have to understand the meaning here. Now, he said, so we can approach the bodily union of sexual intercourse. We have our choice here. You can approach intercourse as either a means to deepening personal communication in marriage and a complete giving of yourself in commitment or engage in it primarily with your own pleasure in mind, using another person without any regard to express your self-giving love for this nuptial meaning or for the well-being of them. You have your choice. Instead of truly being truly committed to the woman as a person in her own good, such a man is committed to his own pleasure. To the woman, only in that moment does he care about her. I just met you at the bar that night. I only care about you for the next hour. For what she provides him, his own sexual gratification. Missing the boat. All right, that was the third one. Fourth major category. Now he's walking through Genesis. What happens next? The very next verse. This is an incredible pact in these three verses of Genesis. This is now Genesis 2.25. What happens in two, Genesis 2.25? They were naked, but not ashamed. The fall hadn't happened yet. The shame comes later, but shame involves fear of another person. This is shame. When we're not sure, we can trust them. We fear being used or hurt, right? So we are afraid of being vulnerable and letting others see us naked. To see others, to see us as we are. You know, originally Adam and Eve were not ashamed. They were not. In each other, they had complete confidence and trust. Their bodily nakedness, right, pointed to an even deeper meaning, deep, deep meaning, in which they felt free to bear not only their body, but what did I say is connected? Their soul. They bared their bodies and their souls completely to each other without any fear that they would use each other or be misunderstood. Boy, was that about to change in just a couple verses. They understood this nuptial meaning of the body, John Paul II says. Now, I'm summarizing, if you joined us late, I'm summarizing a book this thick for you called Theology of the Body by John Paul. So they didn't understand this later, but they did now. They understood this nuptial meaning of the body to express love and communion to each other. 
Imagine, he said, living in a relationship in which there was no selfishness. John Paul said, you knew that your beloved was always seeking what was best for you. Do we have that trust today? Well, if you don't, stay with us. We're going to tell you something about that. Wouldn't it be awesome if you knew your spouse had not just their own interests in mind, but only your good? This is the kind of relationship Adam and Eve originally had in the garden. Now, it's interesting because before the fall, sin had not yet entered the world and humans had self-mastery over their passions and their appetites. Thus, with total purity of heart, they were free from selfish desires, each of them, and saw each other the way God saw them. There was no shame. Adam saw not just the beauty of Eve's body, but the whole truth of her as a person. And not, this is interesting because, you know, we, we think, oh, well, Adam and Eve is just a fable. No, this was the whole meaning of our existence. And just as God rejoiced in creating man and a woman, what did he say when he created them? It is good. It is good. So Adam looked upon his wife with joy, with profound awe and wonder, seeing her as the daughter of God. Is that how we see women when we look at them in pornography? Is that how we see women when, when we look at them, or even women, how they look at men if, if they just want somebody to, to get together with because they feel lonely or they want to feel loved? That's not the true love you're looking for. Well, I only slept with them that one night because I wanted to feel loved. No. But he saw her as a daughter of God who had entrusted herself to him in marriage. Likewise, Eve accepted Adam as a gift and responded to him with similar love and responsibility. It was beautiful. Now the fifth category. Here it comes. Shame. Original shame. Once sin entered the world, now we're talking the fall, man lost his self-mastery. He gave in. Wounded by original sin, this is why we have to get rid of it in baptism, no longer does he look upon his wife with the vision of the creator. Now he has skepticism. You really got us into a mess here, Eve. I don't trust you anymore. So what's happening here? Now he was like the animals, which are driven by instincts and desires. They don't have rational free will like we do. Now they have souls. Animals have souls. Anything alive has a soul. A plant has a soul. An animal has a soul. A human has a soul. But only a human has a spirit, a rationally mortal soul. Animals are driven by instincts and desires to survive and to mate. So Adam now finds himself swayed by this desire to satisfy his sexual desires. No longer does he have mastery over his passions. And now men and women tend to approach each other with selfish and lustful hearts. What can you give to me? I have no use for you unless I can use you. I have no use for you unless I can use you. We all know somebody like that, if not ourselves in some ways. 
That's why Adam and Eve instinctively conceal their sexuality after the fall, right? Trying to hide themselves with a fig leaf, right? I remember Father Alan laughing. He's one of our classic characters when he was trying to get through seminary. And he said, Dr. Harold was his instructor during his thesis. And he kept delaying his thesis and he wasn't getting it done. And Father, Father um, or uh, Dr. Harold saw what then was brother uh, uh, Alan, not Father Alan. He was just a brother then in the hallway. And he's like, he was his advisor. And he's like, Alan, you got to give me your paper. It's running out. Time's running off. I'll get it next week. I'll get it next week. He kept saying. So the next week he'd see Dr. Harold and Dr. Harold would say, you got to give me your paper. Give me a fig leaf to cover your grade. <laughs> and so we have to, we're in that mode now in the world where we have to cover things. We're always trying to cover ourselves, cover our shame, our mistakes. So anyway, Adam and Eve now conceal their sexualities from each other. The moment of sin and lust has now entered their lives. They each no longer have total trust in each other or truly seeking what is best for the other. They instinctively know that their beloved may use them. And now we see this every day we meet people. I'm sure some of us, many of us maybe have times in our past we look back that somebody used us for one night and then took off. You never heard from them again. Our society now uses each other. What's in it for me? Let's look at our next slide because... This, <clears throat> this is uh, the biblical account of the fall. So you could see the shame there, right? Tells us that right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were naked and ashamed. Now we're in Genesis 3:7. So now the defense mechanism of shame kicks in. It enters into their relationship. This shame took place of their absolute trust in one another. See, we imitate the Trinity. Why does Jesus say, trust in me? You know how you learn how to trust in him? Trust in your loved ones first. Well, you should always trust in God first. But if you don't, learn to trust in your loved ones, and that will help you to trust in God. So this shame took place of their trust that they had before the fall. So John Paul II explains that the original unity of Adam and Eve dissolved after the fall. Because without total mutual selfless love and trust, they no longer felt free to truly give themselves to each other. This is what we see in many marriages today. I see both types of marriages all the time. And I'll tell you, I've said this before. The marriages that have that lack of trust, that don't trust each other, almost are never sharing in the marital act. The marriages that are thriving, that are trusting, that are giving their souls to each other, are sharing in the marital act. If you're having marital problems, ask yourself that question. So we'll get to that in a moment. But this is why contraception, I did a whole talk on contraception, you can find it on our channels there, whole talk on this. This is why it's not allowed by the church. It's not truly and freely giving of yourself totally to the others. You know, I really love you, John, but I don't love you enough to have another one like you in the world. I, I can't risk having another child like you. I'll sleep with you, but we got to use contraception. 
Even within marriage, that's not allowed because you're not freely giving of yourself to them. You're putting a block. I love you, my husband, but not enough. I'm blocking your life-giving seed. And we'll talk about that more at the very end. So this is why we need Jesus. All of this that John Paul Drew just described, I just described this much of a book for you in 20 minutes. So I didn't do it justice. You can read more on your own. But this is why we need Jesus. Through his redemptive work in our lives, we can begin to experience healing of these disordered passions. We can take control of our appetites. This is why gluttony is so bad. People don't think gluttony was gluttony because the appetites of the flesh overcome the spirit. And the appetites of the flesh are mainly food and sex. So temperance is the virtue to counteract that. And so we see this. Christ can bring us this healing of our disordered passions and keep us with him to trust and love and that personal communication that God wants us to experience with him and our spouse. These, again, are the two great commandments. You know, John Paul II said the more, this is interesting, he said the more the Holy Spirit transforms and we ask him, are you asking the Holy Spirit? Remember, if you want to become holy, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we pray to Jesus and that's great, but it's the power that, of the Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. It was the power of the Spirit that, that revealed Christ. Christ revealed the Father, the Holy Spirit revealed the Son. And so if you're looking to get holy, if you're, living, if you're looking to control your passions, if you're looking to control your appetites, ask the Holy Spirit. So John Paul said that the more the Holy Spirit transforms our selfish and lustful hearts, and that's only going to happen if you ask him, with total self-giving love like Jesus did, how did Jesus have total self-giving love? He gave his life on the cross. The more the relationships between you and your spouse will change. The more relationships between men and women will begin to recover something of the original unity and dignity of man and women, that nuptial meaning of the body. But the devil has twisted this. The devil has completely, he knows this, he knows that's the key. Christopher West used to say the whole key to all our problems, I believe it's baptism, he says it's theology of the body and they go hand in hand. Our world is not baptizing and our world is not following theology of the body. And that's why we're in such a mess. So the Satan knows this. So what does he want to do? He's attacking marriage like never before to twist it. Let's look at our next slide. The fabric of society is being cut. And look at that scissor. What's cutting the fabric of society? Redefinition of marriage. Now, this current demand that we redefine marriage, including making same-sex unions as marriages. True, this is often motivated by goodwill. This is truly motivated by what wants to be fairness and happiness. But it's a misguided happiness. Opposition to this redefinition is often seen as ill will, bad will, that you hate homosexuals. No, 
the church never has and never will. You know the classic example, love the sinner? Well, we love the sinner, both hetero and homosexual sinner. The church teaches love the sinner. The sinner is both heterosexual and homosexual, not just homosexual. And love the sinner, but hate the sin. Hate the sin, both heterosexual sins and homosexual sins. A heterosexual can sin just as badly. So it's not about the church saying, I hate this group of people. Nevertheless, the rightness or wrongness of same-sex unions has to only and can only be decided by the truth. And the truth is, they can't be marriages. This isn't my teaching. This is the teachings since really the beginning of mankind. And that's why it's interesting because most societies of the past, in fact, all held this view that marriage is between a man and a woman. In fact, most societies of the past didn't even love the sinner. If there was a homosexual, they were ostracized, if not condemned, if not killed. You know who changed that? You know who changed that whole mentality of attacking the homosexual sinner? The church. How ironic the church is the one called the hater when it was the church who turned it around. Topic for a whole nother talk. J.K. Chesterton said something awesome that I didn't know. Chris Sparks, our theologian, pointed this out to me. He refers to something called the democracy of the dead. Have you ever heard that? This is fascinating. He says the vast majority, if not all of past cultures and religions, they are a serious authority. We can't just neglect. We can't just neglect hundreds of thousands of years of, of history. He says they are a serious authority and they were all against it. All against marriage being other than man and a woman. All that is far, this is interesting. All that is far less likely to be wrong. All of that. All of this centuries upon centuries. They are much less likely to be wrong than we are today. One little blip. One little country, well, we're not little, but only a handful of countries are now embracing redefining of marriage. In all of history, 115 billion people have lived in the world since it began. In all of human history, it was always defined marriage was between man and a woman. In every culture, in every religion. Now we have one little group of the world of seven and a half billion, just a handful of countries, and within those countries, just a handful of people that believe that marriage can be redefined, but yet we have to change human history for this one little minority group? Uh-uh. This is what's wrong. So all of these past countries are far less likely to be wrong than a single current culture, ours today, that we live in, that only a few nations hold this view, and only within those nations, only a few people hold that view. Dr. Peter Kreeft uh, does an argument from reason. He says this is very interesting. He says we can criminalize or decriminalize many things, including homosexual acts. 
But some redefinitions, he said, are impossible. Like gender. Now, that doesn't mean we don't love our children if they come home and have changed their gender. It does not mean we condemn our loved ones or friends if they change their gender. That is not our job. We love them. God judges. We do not the person, but the act we are called to say is wrong. I am morally obligated to teach you this. I am not going to face my maker someday and be condemned as a priest. We are held to a very high standard and I'm going to be condemned because God tells me you never taught the truth. I can't. I'm sorry. I love you, but I can't go to hell for you. So I have to teach the truth. And it's not because God hates. No, he loves. He wants to see you on the right path. This is why we are to get our loved ones back on the right path. So if somebody comes home and they've changed their gender, you don't say, Father Chris says, I have to hate you. No, you love them even that much more because they need your love that much more. They're confused. They're still good people. They're still beautiful people. You still love them. They still love you. They're just confused. Gender confusion is Satan's biggest tool right now. But Peter Kreese says, redefinitions like gender are impossible. He says, we can call squares triangles, but that does not make them a triangle. Calling all cats dogs does not make them dogs. Calling all anything, something that it is not, you can call it that all day long. But it's not the truth. So calling a boy a girl or a girl a boy is not the truth. It's not helping them. And he said calling a homosexual friendship a marriage does not make it a marriage. This doesn't depend on whether they're good or not. These are good people. These are loving people. We're not condemning the people. We're not saying the people are good or bad. No, it depends on what they are, their nature, their essence. And and a boy is a boy, a girl is a girl. This is how God created us. If you believe that it is impossible to draw lines between genders, man and woman, or even between men and animals now, then Peter Kreef says, don't invite me to your dinner table because then I'll be a cannibal. I'm eating an animal, one of my own kind. Because I identify with a wolf because I'm hungry and I eat, I wolf my food down. So that makes me a wolf. Now I'm eating another animal. I'm a cannibal. This is, this, this, this does not make any logical sense. So you can only redefine things that we create. So I can redefine something that I make or create, but not things discovered that were created by God. Okay? No. You know, I can, I can redefine a transport vehicle because we invented that. But I can't redefine who I am. God created that. This is the first necessary thing for people on both sides of this argument to understand Their opponents on both sides are not idiots or loveless liars. No, there's just confusion. But here's the interesting thing. 
Their ideas contradict each other. Now, this is what society will never tell you. Society will never tell you this. One side has to be right and one side has to be wrong. This is called the law of non-contradiction. You can't have two truths. You cannot. For the law of non-contradiction, two propositions that contradict each other, to be or not to be, cannot both be true. A man or a woman, you are born a man or a woman, you cannot be both. The law of non-contradiction is the natural law. One has to be true, one has to be false. I feel like a woman. Wasn't that a song? I feel like a woman. I can't say, even though I may feel, well, I won't say that either. I can't say I'm a woman. I'm a man. That's not the truth. That's violation of the law of non-contradiction. That's why neither side seems to compromise. They both think that they have the truth. No, not because these two groups of people intolerantly exclude each other or hate each other. No, it's because their ideas contradict each other. And only one can be the truth. So if you subtract any side, for instance, Peter Kreef says, from a square. Take a square. He said, you subtract any side from that square. You don't change the nature of squares, so then now it includes three-sided squares. Well, I just took a side of the square out. That makes it a new definition of square. No, we can't. You simply don't have a square anymore. You have a triangle. Again, this doesn't mean we don't love triangles. You love triangles, but you don't call a triangle a square. I hope this makes sense because I know I'm going to get letters. <laughs> oh, I know I'm going to get letters. That, Father, my daughter is a good person. How dare you say and teach this hate? No, you are to love your daughter. You are to help your daughter. You are not to ostracize her, condemn her. You are to love her. But when you love someone, you help them, especially with confusion. Even if that means they won't even talk to you, just pray for them. This is so important. Marriage is set. We can't redefine it. And homosexual union is something entirely different than the marital act. Yes, this is interesting because this union is just based on sex. Sex is part of marriage, but it's not the only part. So what is the goal then of sex? Now we're going to get into the practical details. So again, if your children are watching, this might be a time now we're getting into that it's a little more adult content. Marriage, as we define it, has something to do with sex, but not only. The best marriages, as I said, are ones who are engaging in the marital act. All right, but that's not all they are. Sex between a married couple is mostly unitive and procreative. It is to be faithful and exclusive. That's the first thing. 
but more importantly, even open to children. That's what a family is. And it's the second one, open to children, that why it has to be heterosexual. Only heterosexual marriage and the heterosexual act is open to life, can be producing of children. That is its nature, its end, its purpose, its goal. Okay? Take a look at a reproductive system. When I go to the doctor, I'm amazed. You look at the guy's chart on the wall, you're like, hey. Look at the woman's, it's like, oh my. How could that not have an intelligent designer? Incredible, the woman's reproductive system. So let's look at our next slide. All right, that is the ultimate point of marriage. Look, that's it. To be complete, marriage needs children. And to be complete, children need to, born, need to be born into a marriage and a family. Every child needs the protection of a family. Unfortunately, not all of them have that. Sometimes it's not possible, a loss of a parent. But every child needs two parents, not only to be procreated, which it took two, but also to be educated by differing role models, the male and the female, the mom and the dad. You know, Father, I've, I didn't have a dad. How dare you point this out? No, 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 no. Here's what the church points out. If your family does not have a mother or a father, let it be God's choice, not our choice. Now, sometimes it's not our choice either way because the husband abandoned the wife or the wife abandoned the husband. There's nothing we could do there. Spouse dies. We had one of our priests, his mom died when she was two, and he was two. And so we understand that. But that's out of your control. What is within your control is to say, well, no, I'm going to stay in a union with my male friend. I'm male. I'm going to stay in a union with my male friend, and we're going to adopt a baby. You are denying that children, that child willfully. Now, if it's unwillfully and God's arrange it somehow in his permissive will that a mom isn't present, that's different. That's different. And people don't understand this. Men and women are hardwired with different instincts and different talents, and a child needs both of them. Deliberately depriving a child of either a mother or a father is child abuse. This is what Pope Francis said. I'm using his words. What should motivate, this is interesting, what should motivate opposition to same-sex marriage is not hatred. I hate those people. That's not it at all. That's not what should motivate your opposition to same-sex marriage. Not hatred of homosexuals. What should motivate your opposition to same-sex marriage is love of children. That is the key. Studies have shown that many psychological dis disorders come from a lack of either a father or a mother, or both. Let's look at our next slide. This is chastity. What is chastity? Chastity is a sign of contradiction in our world today. Some think that once they're married, all sexual activities are fine. Chastity is no longer needed. Anything goes inside marriage. I'm married now. We can 
bring in the clown next door into our sexual relationship. No. Loving our wives as Christ loves his church is much deeper than just free-for-all sex. All Christians are called to chastity at all times, depending on their state of life. Some embrace marriage, so you're called to share with your husband or wife. Others embrace virginity or consecrated celibacy like us. Okay? Enabling them to give themselves to God alone. You don't have to be a perfect past to give yourself in, to God in purity now. The successful integration of our sexuality makes us men of integrity and women on, of wholeness, men of wholeness, which is the foundation of a purity of heart. So a lack of such integrity or wholeness means that we are disintegrated, disintegrated, obliterated, disintegrated. We're scattered, dissipated. A lack of chastity then is ordered to a lack of personal integrity. You ever notice that when you see somebody who lives that kind of lifestyle? You can also see it in their personality, can't you? We are then open to sins of lust, especially pornography. We disintegrate our sexuality and cause us to lead a double life. Pornography, very dangerous. I'm going to do a whole talk on this later. I won't spend a lot of time, but we objectify the image do you know what happens in pornography? In pornography, the exorcists tell us, this scared the daylights out of me, scared me straight, is when you, you look at an image online, a pornographic image, by objectifying that person for your own pride and gratification, the exorcists tell us that behind all those images of pornography that you're looking at, has been assigned a demon. Has been assigned a demon. And what are your eyes called? The windows to your soul. Now please don't let me scare you because it doesn't mean that maybe you've slipped in the past and now all of a sudden Father Chris says I'm possessed. Yes, it's possible, but most likely God is giving you a chance here by listening to this talk to correct some things, all right? So this is powerful. Pornography is very dangerous. Pope Francis, Brother Mark just sent me an article. Pope Francis just warned against it yesterday, said it's a threat to public health. We become enslaved. Chastity is the way out. It gives us the strength not to be reactive or controlled by our passions and lusts, but rather the freedom that comes with self-mastery, the freedom to love as Christ loved his church. This strength is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, chastity. It's a battle which we cooperate with the Holy Spirit as we strive to imitate the purity of Christ, especially chastity within marriage. All right, so we're going to take a two-minute video right now. For those of here, we take a two-minute break. I'm going to show you a great little summary on the video on your screen for two minutes of what sexuality is. And then we come back. I guess I jumped the gun too early. When we come back, we'll get into more specific details of sexual acts that are, well, not details, but descriptions that you may want to have your children not see, but 
We'll talk about what is allowed, what is not allowed when we come back. Now, this is a video explaining human sexuality. What does the church teach about sexual morality? From a basic biological perspective, sex is the act of procreation. As a genuine human act, sex should also be an expression of a loving gift of self. This much was established in the previous episode. Now, for sex to be an actual expression of that gift of self, a few things must be taken into consideration. A gift has two essential characteristics. A gift is forever, and a gift is given completely. When I ignore these characteristics of a gift in human sexuality, I destroy the actual meaning of the sexual act as an expression of self-giving. That means, first of all, sex cannot be a genuine expression of self-giving if I do not intend to stay together with the other person, if there is some expiration date on our relationship, a one-night stand, an affair, a temporary relationship, or a let's-just-give-it-a-try kind of thing destroys the meaning of sex as an expression of self-giving. Sex has its proper place in a relationship where we take this giving yourself forever seriously and really mean it. In what type of relationship is this the case? Well, in marriage, because when I get married, I solemnly promise before God and the people that I will love, honor, and cherish the other all the days of my life. I make a firm commitment that I want to give myself forever, and that is why sex belongs properly in marriage. Second, a gift is given completely. For sex, this means I have to give myself as I am, as a man or woman, with my masculinity or femininity. This includes my fertility, which is part of me as a biological being. Procreation is not the only meaning of human sexuality, but it is there in the very nature of the sexual act. And if I purposefully destroy my fertility, the sexual act can no longer be an expression of giving myself completely. This is the reason why the church rejects artificial contraception. Artificial contraceptives destroy the meaning of the sexual act as a true gift of self. And therefore, sex would no longer be an authentic expression of giving yourself. Artificial contraception is consequently ruled out by the church. Now, are there other methods of family planning? There are different, in fact, also modern, methods of natural family planning. Well, thank you for staying with us for that video. I just told the group here that now we're going to be entering into probably what's the most embarrassing part of a talk I've ever had to do, but I get these questions all the time. It only took me 100 episodes to be able to answer these questions for you. So um, let us start with, I saw a good summary that we get this question a lot. And I saw a good summary by Father Vincent Serpa, who's a Dominican. I really trust the Dominicans. And we get this question all the time. If, if, if sex is good for us, why is the church so hostile towards it? All right. The specific question was, why is the church so hostile to sex? Is there a plan for the magisterium to review the sex rules, such as masturbation, which I hear actually has health benefits? The church is living in this medieval, archaic understanding well, the thing is about church teaching on sexuality, the church can't change it. It was revealed by God. The church is not hostile to sex. 
Indeed, nowhere will you find a higher understanding of sexuality than the Catholic Church, especially John Paul's theology of the body. The church teaches reality. Opinions don't change reality. Your opinion could be, I think the church is in the Middle Ages. They got to change with the times. They can't. God taught this and revealed this. We can't change Christ's teaching. Even, this priest said, even if their physical benefits to masturbation were substantial, which he said, I doubt, they would not justify the negative results. Masturbation conflicts with the whole purpose of sexuality, and many people don't know it's a grave sin that needs to be confessed. A lot of people do know it. I do hear it in the confessional, but many people do not because society tells us it's healthy, it's good, it's joyful, it helps you. No, it draws yourself into yourself. That's not why we were created, as John Paul said. The act of sexual intercourse is the physical expression of the marriage vows made at the altar. It is therefore an expression of Christian love, example concern for the other. It is the most complete way of expressing the total self-donation of one person to another, a renewal of the covenant. That's what the marital act is. But this act of yourself goes against all that. Total self-donation. Now, total means complete until death. It can't be total for a week, total for a night, even total for a couple years. With self-love, masturbation, there is no self-donation to anybody. It consists of taking pleasure for yourself alone. There is no giving at all. We were created for more than that. Nobody understands this anymore. We have Catholic high schools that are teaching that this is a healthy thing to do. This goes against our Catholic faith. Well, then somebody came out, and this was answered by Carlo Brassard of Catholic Answers. What about mutual masturbation within marriage? Okay, the question was, if a husband and wife faithfully practice natural family planning, planning to avoid pregnancy, is it okay for them to engage in mutual masturbation during her fertile period? The answer is assuming this means outside the context of the marital act, the answer is no. The reason is because it involves freely using the sexual faculty while frustrating its ultimate end of procreation and unitive love because there's no physical union thus making it an act of perversion, it's called by the church. I know that sounds harsh. Obviously, it frustrates the procreative end in as much as the activity is per se incapable of producing a child. But it also frustrates the unitive end in as much as there's no physical union with spouses as a unitive love depends on the biological union of male and female. Without the one flesh union that is generative in nature, 
there can be no real spousal union. Hmm. What does the church say about this? Let's go to our slides, and I'm just going to read from the catechism. So I, I hope not to offend anybody. These are just the words from the catechism of the Catholic Church. They're very clear in teaching about this subject. By masturbation is to be understood the deliberate stimulation of the genital organs in order to derive sexual pleasure. Both the magisterium of the church in the course of constant tradition and the moral sense of the faithful have been in no doubt and have firmly maintained that masturbation is an intrinsically and gravely disordered action. That's hard. But this is just the church teaching. The deliberate use of the sexual faculty for whatever reason outside of marriage is essentially contrary to its purpose. For here, sexual pleasure is sought outside the sexual relationship which is demanded by the moral order and in which the total meaning of mutual self-giving and human procreation, the context of true love is achieved. Um, what do you say? You pray, you ask God for the strength, especially if you're struggling in this area. Now, however, this is very clear not to say though, and again, I'm sorry, I, I don't, this is very difficult for me, but stimulation of the genitals within the context of the conjugal act is not immoral. That's part of it. In this case, such stimulation is not considered masturbation. It is commonly held among moral theologians that such activity is morally permitted on condition that such activity does not prevent the procreative and unitive ends of the sexual act. All right. In fact, such activity can enhance the achievement of the two ends and thus be considered good. And finally, on this topic, next slide, Catechism 20 through 52, 2352. These are for people who say, Father, now I'm in big trouble. I've been addicted to this since I was 15. Well, here's what the church says. To form an equitable judgment about one's moral responsibility for masturbation, one must take into account the effective immaturity, that means they could be a very young person, force of acquired habit, meaning I've been ingrained in this habit for 30 years, conditions of anxiety, or other psychological or social factors that can lessen, if not even reduce to a minimum, moral culpability. Now, this doesn't mean, Father, I need stress relief. So I do it every night because I need the stress relief. Well, be careful. See what the church teaches. It's trying to help us in this area. Let me tell you, if you can conquer this area, you can be a living, walking example of charity. Because charity is giving of yourself, not taking yourself. That's selfishness. And so we're, why we're not condemning any persons here. 
Oh, Father, that means 95% of the people are going to hell. No. As long as all of those people are trying to live the teachings that God gives us. Honestly trying. So, let's go on. What sexual acts are allowed? Kimberly Hahn, the wife of Scott Hahn, said, she spoke to a men's conference, and she said, men, your sperm will eventually, if you get married, only belong in your wife in a place where it can be fertile. Sex outside of marriage always constitutes a grave sin and excludes one from communion. That's the Catechism, 2390. Not saying it's easy. Just saying it's something that we have to be aware of. All right, tough one. Oral sex. Very common, very asked about. I probably get more questions on this regarding sexuality than anything. So Father Hugh Barber on Catholic Answers answered this really good. He pointed out a saint of the past, St. Alphonsus Liguori, and most traditional moral theologians of the church say it's not allowed, even as part of foreplay for natural sexual intercourse for two reasons. One is practical, one is moral. Now what St. Alphonsus Liguori says is for the practical reasons to avoid oral sex is there's the danger of the male completing his act before intercourse, which is not morally permissible before intercourse would begin. This would make relations non-procreative and thus wrong. The second reason St. Alphonsus Liguori says not to do it, see, they even talked about this back in the Middle Ages, right? The second and moral reason is that a couple may develop a concrete preference for oral stimulation over natural sexual intercourse. And that cannot be good. So they get into a situation emotionally, he said, of preferring an unnatural act to that of having the natural act. So we have to be careful. Now, other theologians have tempered this. Okay? This, again, if you have children, you might want to censor. The man is allowed to help his spouse to reach completion, to reach an orgasm. The man is allowed to do this as long as it is part of the marital act. So the man would not do this for the female, for his wife, unless it was part of the marital act, either before or after as part of it. So this is interesting. So oral sex on the female is allowed, is allowed even to completion, to climax. But oral sex on the male is never allowed to completion, to climax, because that's the life-giving seed. So the woman may climax within foreplay as part that leads to intercourse and it be totally morally acceptable. The man cannot. 
So women, there you go. <laughs> so men have to accept that. The seed is not to be spilled. It's to be given only inside the female in every act. So more oral sex to help as part of the lovemaking act can be allowed for the female, even to the point of completion, but never the male. Hope I don't get any hate mail from guys on that one. But this is important church teaching. Okay, very important. Now, he has the seed, she does not. She receives it. So this is how the church teaches. All right, what about the next one? Did the church ever teach sex was only for procreation? No. This is a big misconception. The church hates sex for pleasure. It's only to have babies. So count the number of children that they have in that family. That's the only number of times that you're allowed to have sex. They have nine children. They should have only had sex nine times in their marriage. No. Church teaches relations are both procreative and unitive or sharing love. The church has never taught that conjugal love was only for procreation. It's unitive too. If that were the case, the church would have always banned from marriage those couples incapable of gauging in love because of being sterile. So if the man finds out that his sperm count is insufficient and he can't, he's sterile, the church doesn't say you can't have sex. They can still unite, but the act has to be completed as if it was fully uh, fertile. All right. So in addition, that's something that spouses usually don't even know until they're married. Now, if the church taught that conjugal love was just for procreation, the church would have banned all sex after menopause. Has the church done that? As the church said, you're not allowed to have sex after menopause because you cannot conceive? No. Many people state that that's some of the best unitive years of their life with their spouses after menopause. Church has never taught this. All right, how about this one? Did the church ever teach that sex during pregnancy is a sin? Actually, St. Augustine spoke harshly against this, but not so much now. Because it's not against nature. Remember, all of this is what is natural and what is not natural. That's why heterosexual activity is natural. And when the church says that any other activity is unnatural, bestiality or homosexuality, the church is accused of being bigots and haters. It's not. It's called following the natural law. So just as when sexual intercourse occurs during a woman's infertile period of her cycle, the sexual act during pregnancy still retains an ordination to a pre-procreative end. So even though when you have sexual relations in a woman's infertile cycle, if you're a natural family planning, she's not going to conceive, but the act is oriented towards conception if needed, if God so called it. It's the same with during pregnancy. That's to say, the act itself is still directed to a procreative end, even though natural circumstances prohibit the achievement of pregnancy. There is nothing done to intentionally block 
procreation like contraception does. Contraception blocks procreation. Now, here's another one. This is kind of similar to the one we asked earlier. Did the church ever teach that sex was to be formed, to be performed only to have children? So it's kind of a similar question. The answer is it has always been part of the church's teaching that procreation and the rearing of children is the primary end of sexual relations. But the unitive aspect, just showing your love to your spouse, is a secondary and worthy end as well. Inasmuch as it pro presupposes the procreative. But this doesn't entail that the couple has to always intend pregnancy every time the marital act happens, as long as you don't block it. All right, the church teaches that the sexual act itself must always have the ordering toward the generation of children. What this means is that the couple can never do anything to intentionally block the procreative end of sex, even if you know you can't get pregnant. So that'd be like, I can't get pregnant, but we're still going to use contraception because, you know, it's infertile period and I just don't trust the natural family planning. Since procreation is what the conjugal act is for, to do this would be to violate human nature and thus violate God's will. Hmm. All right, we're getting near the end here. If a couple has just reasons for not having children at a particular time, and they desire to express their love through sexual intercourse, they may do so during the woman's infertile periods. This is natural family planning. Let's look at our next slide. Natural family planning. Pro-woman, pro-man, pro-child. I thought that was kind of interesting. All right. Natural family planning is not contrary to nature because it in no way frustrates God's design for sex. It is nature's doing that the woman doesn't conceive during her time period. That's nature. That's God. There's no lying to the body like the pill. The pill lies to the body. It says you're pregnant. So the whole ovulation and menstruation, everything's just turned upside down chemically. It's dangerous. And since sexual intercourse during the infertile periods is in agreement with God's design for sex and nature's design for sex, it's in agreement with God's will. For God's will is expressed in the order of nature. That's interesting. God's will is seen in the order of nature. So if you want to know what you're doing right or wrong, look at the natural law. And the natural law tells us there's two genders. The natural law teaches us marriage is between a man and a woman. Our society and Satan want to twist that. So although a couple doesn't have to intend to have a child in every act of sexual intercourse, they may never actively impede the act from being ordered towards producing a child. Hope that makes sense. Last page. Last page. 
We'll finish a little bit on birth control because this is misunderstood. Now, I already did a talk on this. Let's show our next slide, if Brother Mark can put up there, the many forms of birth control. Now, I'm not going to do a lot on this. I'm going to finish up in just a few minutes because I've already done a thorough, extensive talk last year on birth control. You can find it on YouTube and Facebook. Um, so I'm just going to touch on it here. The Catholic Church has always taught and continues to affirm the contraception is gravely opposed to marital chastity. Why? It attempts to separate the love-giving dimension from the life-giving dimension hmm. of the marital act. And in so doing, both dimensions are compromised. There's the love-giving dimension and the life-giving dimension. Contracepted sex is not objectively loving. It's inherently selfish, and it mars the integrity of the marital act as its ends become disintegrated. How do we know that contraception is right? I don't see that in the Bible, Father. Well, there's many forms of it, and there's one big one in the Bible. The Bible mentions at least one form of contraception, and condemns it greatly. Coitus interruptus. This was onan, which onanism is sometimes used, but it's, it's in the Bible. Onan was a character that avoided fulfilling his duty according to the Jewish law of fathering children for his dead brother. You might know the story. Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife. Now his brother died. <laughs> That's an important factor. Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. Now, I'm reading right from the Bible here. This is Genesis 38, verse 8 to 10. So when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. And what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he slew him also. Ooh, that's pretty tough. <laughs> Onan received death as punishment for this crime. This is in the Bible. This is not the Catholic Church. This is not the hating Catholic Church. This is the Bible. This means his crime was serious. This means his crime was more serious than simply not fulfilling his duty of a brother-in-law. Somebody could say, well, Father, the crime was that he didn't produce children. No, it's more than that. He lost his life because he violated the natural law. As Jewish and Christian commentators have said for centuries. So you can read that. Now, to finish, what about apostolic tradition regarding birth control? The teaching that birth control is wrong is found 
in our church fathers who recognize it violates both biblical and natural law. Let's look at our next slide. In 195, Clement of Alexandria wrote, because of its divine institution for the propagation of man, the seed is not to be vainly ejaculated. This is 195. Nor is it to be damaged, nor is it to be wasted. That's from his writings, The Instructor of Children. So certain acts are not allowed that involve not finishing inside the female. Let's go to Augustine. Next slide. Augustine wrote in Fort 19, I am supposing then, although you are not lying with your wife for the sake of procreating offspring, you are not for the sake of lust obstructing their procreation by an evil deed. He's talking about contraception. Those who do this, although they are called husband and wife, are not. Nor do they retain any reality of marriage. Ouch. But with a respectable name, cover a shame. Sometimes this lustful cruelty comes to this, that they even procure poisons of sterility, oral contraceptives. This is from his work, Marriage and Concupiscence. Whew. Don't kill the messenger here. The apostolic tradition condemning contraception is so great do you know that it was upheld by all Protestant churches into the 1930s? All Protestant churches, even Martin Luther, John Calvin, condemned any form of contraception. And the Protestant churches kept that all the way to the 1930s. Now, only the Catholic Church stands alone in this teaching. Indeed, most studies now reveal there's a far greater divorce rate in marriages that use contraception than those who don't. So the bottom line, everybody, experience, natural law, scripture, tradition, the magisterium, they all tell us about the wrongs of contraception. And I finish with in vitro fertilization because to me this, this is a hard one to understand, especially if a loving couple is just dying for children and loving and want to love the child. I, I admit, I, I, I struggle with this one, but I understand the church's teaching. And that's when we open ourselves up to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And the church teaches, these are the words of the church, no matter how powerful reproductive technology is, the fact will always remain that two men or two women can never become parents through each other. They will always depend on the donation of someone else's sperm or egg in order to bring about the conception of a child. IVF and related technology are wrong for everyone, not just for same-sex couples. Using these technologies 
means that conception takes place outside the loving embrace of husband and wife. In its place is a dehumanized act of production, a mere putting together of the parent's genetic material. No child should be treated as a product. A child deserves to be the fruit of an act of marital love, of his or her parents' mutual love, self, loving self-gift. However, the child is always to be loved as a gift. The child is still loved as a gift. God brings a greater good out of even wrongful acts, and a child is always a greater good, no matter how conception happened. So let us look upon church teaching as a guide. If you want to get to your goal, you need a map. If you're going to where you want to go, you need a GPS. The church teaching and the surest way to be derailed is immoral sexual activity. Mary said at Fatima, more souls end up in hell for sexual reasons than any other. That's scary. But at the same time, the church gives us the GPS to avoid those pitfalls. Let us not condemn the church. Let us embrace her teaching. Centuries old of wisdom and love, even if we don't agree with it. That is the ultimate giving up of pride. I don't understand the church teachings on contraception. I don't agree with it. But because it's the church, because it's God, and God speaks to his church, I will accept it. Do you know how many blessings will be showered upon you if you make that statement? You know how many graces will be poured upon you if you do that and you live that? God's reward for you that you give up the most closest thing in your entire being is I want the contraception with my spouse. You do that for the gift of God and keep it open to the natural law, following and doing in the way he shows us through his church, your rewards will be off the chart. Your graces will be inconceivable because it's truly sacrificing our will for his will. My will is I want sex from my wife on demand. I don't want to have to worry, woman, you pop that pill. I need you when I need you. You give that up. You give your own will up. And the pill has been shown to have many health, health concerns. Cancer and all kinds of stuff. There's been a lot shown there. But most of all, it's given up your will for God's will. How beautiful is that? So thank you, everybody. I know this isn't an easy topic. I know this is not a difficult, I'm sorry, it is a difficult thing to talk about. And it's not easy to live. But with God's help and grace, you can. And it'll change your life. So few people are following God's teaching on sexuality. So few people. Praise be to God that you are. And if you're not, but you're listening to this, it means God's calling you to do that. 
God bless you. And it wouldn't be me if I didn't finish with a quick couple slides of Brother Mark and pop up there. Please join our Marian family. You can see on our next slide, if you haven't become a Marian helper yet, it doesn't cost anything. It takes but 10 seconds. Join us. Visit MIC Prayers. That stands for Marian Immaculate Conception. MICprayers.org. Sign up today. You can start to share in all the graces of our masses, our rosaries, our prayers, our penances. And then finally, we got some things that you could share with us. A lot of what I talk about in these uh, um, Explaining the Faith series, you can get my DVD called Explaining the Faith. This is a series of my talks. You can get that on shopmercy.org or 800-462-7426. Next slide, you can get my book on divine mercy. We please ask you to follow God's divine mercy. Also on Shop Mercy, same phone number. And I've always said, I tell you what, if you can't afford it, but you really want it, you want that DVD or that book and you'll truly watch it, I'll give you a free copy. So just give us a call. And um, Peter is my assistant. And he's at 413-298-1303. And you can, he can help you. Okay, that's Peter or easier, Peter James at Marion.org. One word, and I don't have that on a slide, I'm sorry. Peter James, one word, at Marion, M-A-R-I-A-N.org. He can help you. Now, God truly knows if you can afford it or not, so if you can't, I will send you one. And finally, unfortunately, suicide rates are going through the roof. It's, it's a sad, sad thing, and I ask you to visit us at suicideandhope.com. And there I have my book. You can also get at Shop Mercy, but my book after suicide is a book of hope. It's not just um, church teaching. It's a book of hope. And this book is not just about suicide. If you've lost anyone, any loved ones, um, this book will help. And it's not just for loss. It's for any trouble you're going through in your life. Where's God? That book will help you. So praise be to God. We are so glad you joined us. And keep with us next week. I'll be right back here again live this coming Saturday. And I haven't picked a topic yet. It's either going to be Freemasonry or it's going to be... No, actually, I'm sorry. I did. I did. It's going to be yoga, Reiki, palm reading, fortune telling, horoscopes, all these things. What does the church teach? So we want you to come back and join us next Saturday. Until then, may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. 
That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.